The sermon this morning is from Revelation chapter 4, but I want to uh, begin to lay down a few ground rules for our study in the book of Revelation. So I want you, first of all, to turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read the, uh, the first three verses here and point out something to you that is going to form one of our fundamental ground rules. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, twice in these three verses, there is a statement made that forms the foundation for one of our ground rules. The first one is there at the end, or right in the middle of verse 1, that this is about things that must soon take place. Things that must soon take place. So the book is about things that must soon take place. And this was written 2,000 years ago. And then at the end of verse 3, the time is near. And so one of our ground rules is whenever we can, when we can see a fulfillment of something that we encounter in the book of Revelation that took place very soon after the book was written, we're going to jump on that. So 2,000 years into the future is not very soon. And uh, so I think the views of Revelation that relegate all of it from chapter 4 through chapter 21, relegate all of it to a future, are ignoring statements like this. At least for for the people who read it, there was a lot of this that was going to be fulfilled in their lives. We will have occasion in the next few weeks, I think, to refer at length to Jesus' Olivet Discourse when he describes things that uh, many people say happen in the distant future, thousands of years in the future. And then Jesus ends up by saying, I tell you the truth, there are some of you who are standing here now who will not die before all of these things are fulfilled. And so we've got to take that into consideration Of course, this is not the only time in the book of Revelation that this anticipation of soon fulfillment is uh, is going to happen. So in at least two of the letters to the seven churches, the Lord says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And as I pointed out when I preached through those, what, what comfort is it to someone living in the first century for the Lord to say, don't worry. Several thousand years in the future, I'm going to come back. And so at least some of the returnings of the Lord are something before His second advent when He comes back in glory to rule forever and ever. So that is one of the ground rules that we want to lay down. The the book starts off that way. The book ends up that way in, in Revelation chapter 22. Uh, twice the Lord says, I am coming soon. So uh, he says in uh, Revelation 22.10, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now Daniel, in contrast, was given a prophecy, and he was told, seal up the time because 
seal up this book because the fulfillment is not for a long time. But the, mo- much of what he had been shown was going to be revealed in just 500 years. And so he's told to seal it up because it's a long time. But here John is told, don't seal up the book because its fulfillment is near. It says in verse 12, chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And uh, there's another place here in, in Revelation 22 where he's, yeah, verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. So that's one of our ground rules. Whatever future fulfillments there are for what we encounter in the book of Revelation, let's see that numerous times in the book of Revelation it is predicted it's going to happen soon. And then in a scripture reading, I gave you another one of our ground rules. When we can, we're going to try to use the Bible to, to determine what these symbols mean. And it is a book that is full of symbolism. And so I'll point out uh, today, for example, that we encounter some creatures who are full of eyes in front and behind. They have eyes all around and within. So literally, the picture would be some kind of creature that you can't see anything but the eyeballs that are covering them. Now, it may be that John saw a vision of these creatures completely covered with eyeballs, but there's a significance behind that, that vision. There's a significance behind what he sees. And uh, so we'll see in the text today that there's a rainbow around, around the throne of God. That's not just to say it's a really pretty place. There's some kind of significance. And so one of the ground rules is that there's highly symbolic language in the book of Revelation. And when we can, we are going to try and use the Bible itself. Sometimes we can use the book of Revelation itself to interpret what these things mean. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus promised to conquerors, conquerors I will give him the morning star. And then, in cha- well, what's the morning star? Does it mean he's going to have light at the end of a dark night? Uh, what does the morning star mean? And then we get to Revelation chapter 22, and Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. Oh, okay. That explains it. So we don't have to speculate all over the place. Jesus says, I will give myself to the one who conquers. So let's, uh, let's try to see that uh, when, when things were fulfilled, and there's good reason to see that they were fulfilled after, after the book of Revelation was given, then let's say, well, that is at least the first fulfillment of this passage of Scripture. It contains principles that will be relevant for us. I don't know when the Lord Jesus is coming back. It may be thousands of years in the future. But what the book of Revelation has to say was comforting for the people who read it the first time, and it's comforting for us who read it now. So uh, I will continue to lay down a few ground rules, but just kind of keep those in mind as we commence uh, our study into this section of the book of Revelation that is controversial. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now I want to take my first point from that uh, first part of chapter 4 and verse 1, the open door that is in heaven. 
To introduce this point, I want to share with you a few signs that I have seen at the end of people's driveways that I thought were a little humorous. One of them is a sign that says, there is nothing on this property that is worth dying for. Another sign says, due to the high cost of ammunition, we are no longer firing a warning shot. Another sign said, trespassers will be shot, survivors will be shot twice. (laughs) Now, uh, those signs are not really saying, hey, come on in. (laughs) Several years ago, uh, I was interested, uh, if there's a, a, a valley by the cabin in Elliott County where we men are taking, uh, we college men are taking our college retreat this weekend. It's full of double daffodils. And uh, so every spring I would see these double, double daffodils and they're just spread throughout the forest. But it's somebody's property. And uh, so I figured it was the house next to the property. And so I'd never been there before. And So I pulled up in the driveway and started walking towards the door, and a great big bearded country man that I'd never seen, I think he was wearing overalls, flung open the door and looked at me, and he said, come in here, just in that tone of voice, come in here. It's like, am I his cousin? Does he recognize? I knocked on another door in the community one time, and stood there. It was a distant cousin of mine, and I said, do you know who I am? And she said, no, but you look natural to me. <laughs> you ever heard that? You look natural to me. And uh, it, was a, it was an open door. But those first signs that I showed, that, that I told you about, they were saying, don't come on this property. Don't, don't come on here unless you're invited. And I believe that those kind of signs pretty much summarize the attitude of the Old Testament. There was the nation of Israel. There was the little place where they lived. And for the most part, there were signs around Israel that said, don't come in here. Trespassers will be shot. Survivors will be shot twice. Don't don't come in here. And then even when you got on the inside circle, there were perimeters around the tabernacle and around the temple that said, don't come in here or come in here very carefully. And then once you got in the courtyard, then there was the temple itself and there were, metaphorically speaking, signs on the outside that said, don't come in here. If you're not a priest, don't come in here. And then even if you were a priest and you got on the inside, there was another wall back there. And on the other side of that wall was the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And there was a big metaphorical sign on the outside of that that said, you better not come in here. And so at point after point under the Old Covenant, you are encountering things that say, don't come in here. And now here in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, as we begin to see some of the wonders of the new covenant unfolded, the Lord flings open the door and says, come in here. Welcome. The the middle wall of partition has been broken down. The veil of the temple has been torn from top to bottom. When you come 
washed in the blood of the Lamb, come in here. Come and welcome. And so I think that's a very cheerful beginning to this very controversial book. Uh, The first three chapters are not that controversial, but starting in chapter 4, there's really a dividing of the waters, but it starts off with an open door. Now, the next thing that we see is the most important part of heaven. Let's see what it is. Well, he gets invited there, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, I remember years ago, I was uh, 17 or 18 years old, and uh, there was a fellow on my basketball team at Judson College who uh, was not a believer, but uh, he he had heard things about the book of Revelation, and he just wanted to go straight to the book of Revelation. He wanted to talk about the book of Revelation. I'm sure you have encountered people like that. People who don't even know that there is a holy trinity, who, who, who can't speak three sentences about the cross, but they somehow have studied the book of Revelation and want to talk about the book of Revelation. And uh, so this fellow on my basketball team was one of those people. And he said, what, what are all these, what are these, be- I can't remember the details of the conversation. I remember the gist of my answer. But the, uh, the gist of his question was, what do all of these creatures mean? What are all these, uh, these things that John saw in the book of Revelation? There's some weird stuff in there. And I said to him, well, there are many things in the book of Revelation that we may not understand. But the main message of the book of Revelation is clear. God is ruling and Jesus wins. And you know, that was when I was about 18 years old when I said that. Now I'm 60, 61 years old, almost 62, and I'm still telling you that's the main message of the book of Revelation. God is on the throne, and Jesus wins. And if you're on Jesus' side, you're going to win too. So get this big and plain in your head. The first thing that John sees when he is given this vision of heaven is he sees a throne And he sees one who is seated on the throne. Now, look back with me at chapter 3 and verse 21, something we saw last week. Who is this on the throne? Jesus promises in 321, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So who, who is on the throne? Well, first of all, let's point out that this is a symbol. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't need a special place where he sits down, where he is recognized as the judge. But that's the way it is in our world. In our world, if there is a monarchy, the place where the monarch is most displaying his or her authority and and regal power is when he or she is sitting on the throne. And so when Jesus says, I sat down with my father on his throne, I don't think that you should try to think of, you know, you you scooting over to one side so that somebody else can sit beside you in your easy chair. Don't think that it's crowded on the throne. Instead, think of this symbolizes the center of power and authority in all of the universe. And God the Father is there, and God the Holy Spirit is there, and Jesus the Lamb of God is there. But for the sake of the story as it unfolds in chapters 4 and 5, 
I think it's good for us at this point to say it's God the Father who is sitting on the throne. I say that because in chapter 5, Lord willing we'll get to it next week, yes, some of you are flabbergasted that I can actually preach one chapter per week. Uh, It took me six months to get through John chapter 17, but my my goal is to preach all of chapter 4 today. Now, I might keep you till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but uh, Lord willing, we'll get through it. And uh, in chapter 5, we see Jesus going up to the one who is sitting on the throne, and he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Uh, The song service this morning was glorious. Obviously, Jim Bob read the text ahead of time. And so I'll just give you a little hint. Uh, Next week would be a really great week for us to sing uh, that song you sang as a choir special last week, Is He Worthy, Is He Worthy? So that's going to really come up in uh, in chapter 5. And so I think at this point, it's good for us to see that the one one sitting on the throne is God. But, But what do we see when we see God the Father sitting on the throne? Well, try to get out of your head some, some old man clothed in white who's got a big long beard. All of those things are potentially degrading. I know that we mean well when we represent God that way, that he's old and venerable and wise. But I really do think that God knew what he was talking about when he said, don't make any graven images of me. Anything that you imagine me to be is going to be less than what I really am. And so physical images always are a lie. Physical images of God are always a lie because they communicate so far less than what God really is. Now, it may be difficult for you to get some of these images out of your mind. It will take deliberate effort. Uh, You know, you probably have images of Jesus in your head. I I don't think that any of those are helpful. I think that all of those uh, put a lid on something that is not supposed to have a lid on it. I think that when you have images, it fixes a concept in your mind that is not fixed there if that concept is contained only in ideas. So we are going to see some visual representations here, but we don't ever see God's face and there's never a description of what, of what God looks like. But let's see uh, the descriptions that are here and see what they mean. So he sees one seated on the throne And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now, Jasper and Carnelian are not uh, common gemstones in in our repertoire. So I've only got about four or five gemstones that I know what they look like. And I can't afford any of them. But, uh... I'm just kind of curious. Does anybody in here know know for sure what a jasper looks like? Anybody know for sure? Anybody got any jewelry that looks? Nobody knows. So, uh, a carnelian. Anybody know what a, canari, a carnelian looks like? Well, you can look up all these things on the internet, which is what I did. So, not now, please, not now, but uh, later on when you get home, Google images for uh, for jasper and carnelian. What you'll see is that jasper has a variety of colors, but the dominant color is a deep red. And carnelian also. You can order carnelian stones off of Etsy, Etsy, whatever it's called. And I, I, I mean, the picture shows one about six inches tall. And man, it's beautiful. I think I'm going to get one. You know, just, is it really only $26 for a carnelian that big? Uh, but it, it, it's, it's also a red color. And so as you meditate on this, the first thing 
that the first description that you have of the one sitting on the throne is that he has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now, what does that mean? And the first thing that springs into my mind when I see these pictures on, on the internet of jasper and carnelian is, well, if I were going to describe that, I would say that it was blood red. Hey, wait a second. Maybe it does represent blood. And that's the sort of thing that is a good idea, and a guy could really preach a red-hot topical sermon right there. But what if we take the rest of Scripture and get the rest of Scripture to give us a clue as to what this means? So remember when we were reading through Ezekiel chapter 1, I had you note that three times we saw that the vision that he saw of God looked like melted molten metal? Metal that was so hot that it looks like it's about to come on fire. So if we take Ezekiel chapter 1 and the colors that he saw there and apply it to Revelation chapter 4, then we're probably not supposed to think of blood red. We're probably supposed to think of glowing red hot metal. And glowing red hot metal is not the sort of thing that you want to just go and pick up. Now, I'm going to say that this is the first of several representations of God that say, don't make the mistake of thinking I'm a little puppy type God. Don't make the mistake of thinking that I'm a a dear old grandfather God taking you fishing and giving you cookies. You need to know that there are things about me that are unapproachable, things that are dreadful, things that will will kill you, and there is a certain distance that you need to maintain for your well-being. We'll encounter some other things like that. But then in this same context, I think that there are other pictures that say, welcome, like the open door, like the rainbow, which is what we're going to see next. But before we get to the rainbow, remember that verse of Scripture in the book of Romans where Paul's explaining a difficult concept, and then he says this, Remember then the kindness and severity of God. Remember the kindness and severity of God. Those two things go together. Remember His kindness and remember His severity. We see the same sort of thing in Psalm chapter 2 when, uh, when, when the Lord talks about rejoice with trembling. Rejoicing a great happy fun thing. Trembling you got to be careful at the same time. The one who is seated on the throne has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And I think that that represents the molten metal kind of idea that God is a God who is a God of judgment. And in fact, I think that much of the book of Revelation is about the judgment that the Lord is about to pour out on the city of Jerusalem. And so we see God sitting on the throne and he is the, the, uh, the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. But look at what it says next. That's a harsh, that's a, that's a severe, severe image of God. I think what we have next is a lovely image of God that is very attractive and says, come and welcome. It says, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. All right, now if we don't, if we don't use the rest of the Bible, we can just start thinking, oh, rainbows are so pretty. Or somebody might even say, hey, that, rec- that, that uh, represents diversity. 
that there's a rainbow around the throne. I promise you that's not what people would have thought when they read it in the first century. And that's, that's not what we should think either. What is, what is the most famous representation of a rainbow in the Bible? Well, you remember. It was after God had destroyed the world through a flood. Then after the flood, he makes a covenant with Noah. And as a sign of the covenant, he puts a rainbow in the clouds. So the rainbow was a promise from God when he says, My wrath has been poured out, but now I am reserving grace and mercy. And I'm never again going to destroy the world by a great flood. And so surrounding the throne of God, I don't think that we're supposed to think of this as like the St. Louis arch and the throne in the middle, but instead all around, maybe like one of those kind of domes that you see in your superhero movies, there is a, a dome of a rainbow, but it's the color of an emerald. Now, I think for many of these things, so I, I don't find any kind of biblical reference that helps me to understand what an emerald represents. And so I think at that point, you just have to ask yourself, well, an emerald is green, in case you don't know. An emerald is a, is a lovely color of green, not too far distant from the color of green that is in our stained glass windows over here. And so when you think of the color green, what does it represent to you? Well, I hope not St. Patrick's Day and green beer, but I hope, that it repre- I hope that it represents new growth. And I think for most of us, that's what it is. So here is a rainbow that shows that God is a covenant-keeping God, and He is a covenant-keeping God. And this rainbow, has a, it's the appearance of an emerald, so it has a green cast to it, which I think explains there are some things that are going to be destroyed by the molten metal, but there are some things that are going to grow out of my grace. And so I think that this, this book is very much about the, the abolition of the old covenant with Israel, which was, uh, which was terminated with the destruction of Jerusalem, and uh, the commencement of the new covenant with the new Israel, which is defined not by an ethnic people, but by people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That had already commenced years before this was, was written. And one might ar- also argue that the covenant with Israel had been abolished years before this was written. But I think that uh, this is a covenant-keeping God and a covenant-keeping God who is promoting new growth. Let's see what we find next. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, in a book like Revelation, other books that are apocalyptic, there's a lot of symbolic language, and there are symbolic numbers. The most famous symbolic number in the book of Revelation is probably uh, 666. What does that mean? Well, we don't get to that until, until much later in the book. Uh, But there are lots of symbolic numbers. The number seven appears 54 times in the 22 chapters of Revelation. So what does the number seven represent? But here we are, we're dealing with the number 24. Now, uh, being in the same family as a preacher has its advantages and disadvantages. And I suppose one of the disadvantages is that you get experimented on all the time. And so if I get an idea, then I will ask one of my children or ask one of my wife, one of my wives, <laughs> my first wife, my favorite wife. 
What, if you were just going to guess, I asked one of my daughters, what would you think that the number 24 represents when there are 24 elders in heaven? Just what, what do you think? So this is, you know, the daughter that I asked had, had been a believer for three or four years. I asked her this three or four years ago, but she's still young. I think I was driving her to high school. And uh, so I asked her about this. What do you think the number 24 she said, well, I, I think of 24 as 12 plus 12. You know, I do too. When you think of 24, do you think of 12 plus 12, or do you think of 4 times 6, or do you think of 3 times 8? I bet most of you think of 12 plus 12. And uh, if you're thinking of 12 plus 12, then I think you're dead on. Because I think that these 24 elders represent the saints from the Old Testament, which were taken from the 12 tribes of Israel, and the saints from the New Testament who are headed up by the 12 apostles. So that I don't think that this is the 12 apostles in heaven. John himself is still on earth alive writing this book. Of course, all the... And I don't think that it's uh, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Asher. I don't think it's those 12 guys sitting on the throne. I think that it's a, a representative number of saints from the Old Testament and a representative number of 12 saints from the New Testament, and they are described as elders, which is usually applied to humans. So they're elders, and they're, they're redeemed elders. They're wearing, what are they wearing? They're wearing white garments, and they have golden crowns on their heads. Now, in chapter 1, we, uh, we find that uh, John expresses praise to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. And more than once in the New Testament, the redeemed are referred to as being a kingdom and priests. Now the garments here are priestly garments. And so... What significance is it that we become priests? I think the main teaching is this. We enjoy a degree of closeness with the holy God and the holy things of God that at one time was reserved only for the priestly family. And now the the sort of things that Aaron and his sons saw under the old covenant are not as glorious as the things that you see as a New Testament believer. One day, Jesus was discussing John the Baptist, and he said concerning John the Baptist, no one in the Old Te- no prophet is greater than the prophet John the Baptist, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So even if you are a baby Christian, you have seen more spiritual truth than even somebody like John the Baptist ever saw. You have a position that only priests could dream of occupying if you know God through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has said that those who conquer are going to sit with me on my throne. We saw in one of the letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. So we are, we are destined for a future that involves ruling. But at this point, I think that the crown that is on their head 
The Greek word is Stephanos. If your name is Stephen or Stephanie, it comes from this name. The Stephanos is different from the diadem. The Stephanos is a crown that is given to someone who has won the race. So I suppose that when, when Dalton won the 800 meters two or three weeks ago, they probably gave him a trophy or a medal or something like that. But in the old days, they would have put a wreath on your head that would have said, he is the victor. And the rest of the day, you could have walked around the track meet with that wreath on your head. Oh, that's the guy. That's the guy who conquered the rest of the field. And that's the kind of crown that is on the head of these 24 elders. They have conquered. At, at the end of each of the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus makes a promise to people who have conquered. And now, here are people in heaven enjoying, enjoying the presence of God, and they have conquered. They are priests, and they are conquering priests. They have crowns on their heads. Let's see what else we see in this throne room. In verse 5 it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Oh, now there is something else that uh, speaks of the severity of God. Often throughout the Bible, a terrible storm like this that involves clouds and thunder and lightning and rumblings, and there will be earthquakes and heavy, heavy hail that shows up in the book of Revelation. It's often a storm that accompanies judgment. And so when we see these flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder coming from the throne, I think that as Bible readers, we've got to say, oh, there's some, there's some judgment coming. So he's like, he has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now there is uh, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And so that is a, that's a daunting image that we see of the glory of the Lord. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now there's that, uh, that number, seven, appears at least 54 times in the book of Revelation. And here I believe that it refers to the Holy Spirit, that he is represented as seven torches of fire. This is probably what was represented by the seven lampstands, the lampstand that had seven branches that was in the tabernacle and that was in the temple. You have seen a menorah, you know, that Jewish symbol. There's a, a central lampstand in the middle, and then coming out there are three branches on each side to make a total of seven. I think that was a representation of the Old, the Old Testament representation of the Holy Spirit. And so it's no surprise that here in the book of Revelation we see the Holy Spirit represented as seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. So he is completely able to, to, uh, to fill the whole earth. So I don't think that there are seven of him. There is only one, but he's represented as someone who, who uh, exists as seven torches of fire. And then before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, in, in Ezekiel, I pointed out to you that there was an expanse like crystal above the heads of those angelic beings that were represented there. I think they were cherubim. They each had four faces, and there was this expanse. Uh, it wasn't described as a sea, but it was clear as crystal. And here we have this expanse that is described as a sea. It was like a sea, clear as crystal. Now, in the Bible, the sea is often a, a symbol of unrest. 
Sometimes it's a symbol of the nations at unrest. Later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we'll see a beast rising from the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And uh, the sea represents the, the nations at turbulence, like a sea that is being roiled by a storm. Uh, but here, the sea is like glass. No longer is the throne, the throne of God is not threatened at all by the roiling turbulence of the nations. It is a sea of glass. The scene that we uh, have described here for us is also somewhat similar to the scene that you might have observed outside the tabernacle or outside the temple. Outside the tabernacle, there was a laver, which is a, a place where the priests would wash. Outside the temple, there was a brazen sea. It was held on the backs of uh, 12 oxen. And um, that was where the priests would wash before. But here is a sea of glass. So it's the inner throne room of God. But nobody needs to wash to minister as a high priest here. They have already been washed. And so the sea is a sea of glass. And so we have seen the throne room, and now let's see what's around the throne in the middle of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now in Ezekiel, we saw, I think, these same creatures, only there, each one of them had four faces. Here, each one of them has only one face, but it's the same faces. And so there, the point was made that they looked straight forward. And so I would assume that it was their human face that was looking forward in Ezekiel and lion face on one side, uh, ox on the other side, and eagle on the back. That's the way that I just would think of uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. But here, each one of these living creatures has either the face of a lion, face of an ox. Now, what does all that mean? Well, if I were just to ask you, who is the king of beasts, even though you may have never seen a lion, you probably know the lion is the king of wild beasts. And if I were to say, what is the most powerful and tractable of the farm animals? You might say a draft horse, because we almost never see oxen anymore. and We don't see draft horses that often. But in the old days, the oxen would have been just a picture of of patient power. A man, what would he represent? Well, he would represent intelligence. And what do you think an eagle would represent? I think swiftness. And so I think that this represents all of creation as it reflects the glory of God. God is the king. He is, he is the king of all beasts. He is patient and powerful. He is intelligent. He is swift. This says that they had a face like a lion, but I wonder, when God created lions, did He first of all look at what He had already created in heaven and say, I'm going to make some animals that look like you guys. Did He look around heaven and see some, some an angels that He had already created that were very patient, and He said, I'm, I'm going to make an animal that looks like you guys. I think that the whole earth is full of God's glory and that there is so much that reveals the character of God. But I think in general, these creatures represent the entire creation 
in submission to God and, as we will see, worshiping God. These are very intelligent beings. They, they know what is good. They have eyes in front and behind. Look at what it says in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. So these are probably, uh, well, like the angels that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These, these are creatures who are able to see what is most excellent, and all of their eyes are focused on God. They know what is best. Now, how can they continuously give glory to God? I asked my Sunday school class a while ago, do any of you know the difference between the word continual and the word continuous? None of them did. Not even the homeschoolers, which is amazing. <clears throat> and, uh, but none of them knew Continual is something that happens again and again, but there are intermissions. Like a dripping faucet may have a continual drip. But once that drip becomes a stream of water, then the stream of water is continuous. Continuous is something that happens over and over without intermission. The worship of these four living creatures to God is continuous. It's not interrupted. Day and night without ceasing. They never stop saying... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, what do you want more than anything else on earth? What do you want more than anything else? I'm not sure what came to your mind, but if I were to perform a little experiment, and I were to tape your mouth and nose absolutely shut... And I were to ask you one minute later, what do you want more than anything on earth? You would want to breathe. Day and night, without ceasing, since you have been born into this world, you have been breathing. On the drive down here, I said to Carol, my first wife, I said, if, uh, I said, when I, when I tell you, Take a deep breath and hold it for as long as you can without warning. So you don't get to hyperventilate, to fill your blood up with oxygen. Just, I said, and I'll do the same thing. So now, and I started my clock. At 35 seconds, she had to take a breath. At about 40 seconds, I really wanted to breathe. But I made myself wait until one minute had passed. But at one minute, you know what I wanted more than anything else in this world? I wanted to breathe. It is my nature. It is your nature to want breath and to want it all the time. It's just your nature. And so we look at these creatures and we say, how could they day and night without ever interruption, continuously, how could they just be enthralled with the beauties and glories of God? Because it's their nature. Day and night, this is what they want. And they express their appreciation. Let's see what they say. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They appreciate His holiness. They appreciate His Lord Godness. They appreciate His almightiness. They appreciate His eternality. 
And when they express that, their praise is infectious, as it often is among us. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, and we'll look at their song in just a minute, but the living creatures, they express their praise. The elders say, oh, wow, I see that. That's beautiful. And they fall down before the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Several years ago, uh, Kevin Durant was chosen as the most valuable player for the, uh, the National Basketball Association. Now, not now, but after church, Google Kevin Durant's acceptance speech for getting the MVP trophy. And go to the part where he starts talking about his mom. Have some Kleenexes close. Because he's, he's torn up. The camera will shift to his mom, who is also crying. And through his tears and sobs, he says something like this. Mom, we weren't supposed to be here. Eighteen years old, you had my brother. Three years later, out I came. And we never had anything. The first time we ever had an apartment... The three of us just sat on the floor. No couch, no bed, no table, nothing. Just us in that apartment. But we thought we had arrived. And we just sat there and hugged. And through the years, you would wake me up in the middle of the night to go run sprints and to do push-ups. And uh, you'd be on the sideline yelling and screaming at me when I was eight or nine years old playing and, and uh, playing basketball. And... Uh, when there wasn't enough food, you may have gone hungry, but you always made sure that we ate. And then he says, Mom, you're the real MVP. And I just dare you to watch it and not cry. Mom, you're the real MVP. MVP. 